we heard in the kids' talk, um, we're looking at Daniel chapter 7. So Daniel chapter 7, and the words will be up behind me as well. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there was before me another beast, one that looked like a leopard. On its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night I looked, And there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. His horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And I looked. Thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Tens upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit. And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws. 
the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favour of the holy people of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then sovereignty, power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Now we're going to go over to Matthew uh, 26 and we're starting at verse 57. Sorry, thank you. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death. They answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Lots of simple stuff in there, right? All good? All made sense? Excellent. It's a great passage, lots of fun, but it's a little bit different, isn't it? Um, What we're going to do today is I really want to help you see how great this passage is. And I thought, it's full of so much imagery, why don't I give the talk with imagery? And so I've used, um, I just drew some pictures and I put, no, I haven't, I've uh, used uh, some of my favourite images. Many of you know 
uh, we're from. And so we're going to use that to help us understand what's going on. So let me pray, and then we're going to get stuck into this great chapter. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that we can open up your word. Help us now as we look not only uh, at really interesting and uh, out there crazy apocalyptic visions, but we're actually looking at one of the most important chapters in the whole of the Bible, that you help us marvel at Jesus and how it points us so spectacularly to him. Amen. Now, what titles do you have? You've probably got many different titles in your life, in your workplace, you're called something, uh, you may have done study which gives you another title, you could have all sorts of titles, I'm a, technically I'm a reverend, I'll get called a pastor, I'll get called a minister and people have given me many other titles during uh, uh, my time when I was at middle school, I got my least favourite title, toilet brush, because I had spiky hair and my friends thought that was hilarious. Uh, another that was thrust upon me was the rug because when I got so sick as a kid so often that I had so many layers on at school, I got called the rug. We have all sorts of titles. But one title I have is my absolute favourite. And none of you, maybe one of you, gets to call me it. What's that title? Well, it, it, that's true. I've got to, oh, hang on, I've got to make sure it's not awkward. It's not really a title. I don't get, Jen doesn't usually call me husband, (laughs) but my kids call me dad. That's my favourite title because only they get to call it and it highlights the special relationship that I have with them. Jesus had a favourite title and it speaks a lot about our relationship with him. You may think that the title is what many of us think, his surname, it's the Christ. There he is. Many, many people associate Jesus and his title as Christ or Messiah, the same, same idea. And while he certainly is that, that's not the name that Jesus used for himself that often. In fact, there was one title that Jesus used for himself over and over and over and over again. Jesus called himself the Son of Man. And if he came into church today on his name tag, he might ask for Son of Man, please. But what does it mean? What does this phrase mean other than, okay, we know it means Jesus now and if we want to break, pull apart the words, it means there was a man and you're a son. But what does it actually mean? Because my goal for you today is to show you why Jesus saying he is the Son of Man blows the water into how big, how big and spectacular he is and how he is the one who is going to be the solution to the cosmic problem. That he is the one who is going to be the solution to the problem of the world. And so if you want to know my goal uh, for this uh, talk today... The thing I've been praying about as I've been working through this talk and thinking about Daniel 7, as I have been uh, for quite a while, is that I want you to be captivated by Jesus calling himself this and how it 
just brings the Bible alive to us. I want you to marvel at how brilliantly the Bible is put together. And, and I want you to see, I want to know more about this Jesus who is called the Son of Man. And how do we do that? Well, Daniel chapter 7 plays a massive part in that. It's how we understand why Jesus called himself the Son of Man. Daniel, in, uh, in this chapter, highlights to us why it's so important. If you don't know where you are with God, you're not even sure that you, 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 in, wherever you're at with him, you don't even uh, follow him, or you're just not sure what you think of him. If you want to uh, follow on with us today, you get a great snapshot into how God sees us and how he sees Jesus and then how you can relate to him. And I'd love you to follow on with me as we do that. See, how do we jump into this book today? How do, how do we jump into Daniel chapter 7? Some of you have been here every week for the talk. Some of you, it's your first week. How do we jump into it? Well, I was thinking about, has anyone ever, I might know many of you have, has any of you ever binge watched Netflix TV shows? Yeah, right? What happens after you watch one show after the next, at the beginning of the next show, you get um, this week on, insert show, and then there's that little button in the right corner and it says skip recap, you know that little button, and you're tempted to often press that skip recap, yeah, yeah, I know it's happening, I know it's happening. What we can't do if we're going to understand this chapter is skip what's gone before us. And just jump in because we'll misunderstand everything. We won't have all the context. Because what happens in Daniel chapter 7, the whole style of the book changes and it helps us, uh, it, it takes totally new direction in what's happened. See, the book changes in its style from um, chapters 1 to 6 where if you, if you skimmed back and looked through, you'd see there was a whole bunch of stories about Daniel and his friends in exile in Babylon. And then in chapter 7, through to the end of the book, we get Daniel and his uh, out there visions, his apocalyptic visions. So what we want to do is we want to make sure we do the recap and we get what the story has been so far. And I think we can summarise what the story um, is about so far with this picture. You see, what's happened is so far, God's people were destroyed by Babylon. And you can see the king there crushing Israel, Jerusalem there. And King Nebuchadnezzar did that first and they crushed them and they sent them into exile and they've got to live in Babylon now, Babylon's way, who are nothing like God's, uh, God's people in, in the way that God set things up. They're violent, they're despicable and they're expected to follow their culture. And the whole book is about how do you live in suffering away from home in exile in this context. How do you do it? And there's big challenges afoot. And so we had those great stories like Daniel and the lion's den. We had the, the fiery furnace for the friends. And we see that when you're confronted with either not worshipping the Lord or worshipping the Lord, remaining faithful even in exile is crucial. You see, what we get is... The challenge is living in a foreign kingdom who have destroyed your own. That's what's going on in this book and it's being destroyed. How do you figure it out? And this is the pattern that has been going on over and over and over. Just like Psalm chapter 2 does for us. You see there that the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. The pattern 
of all the kingdoms is to rise up against God and say, no, no, we're not going to follow your kingdom, your way. We're going to rule our own way. And we're going to rise up against you. And this is what the book of Daniel is helping God's people wrestle with. But not only is there that recap and background, the style changes because we read it, right? It's pretty out there. You'd agree? All these crazy visions. No, there's apocalyptic visions. And there's lots of animals and, well, the kind of animals, aren't they? Because they're not really, because there's no such thing as those wild imagery. And there's been many attempts to identify them one-to-one. This equals this and this equals that. And in, in coming weeks, in uh, I'll help us think about that a little bit more specifically. But we see in this chapter um, on purpose that the the interpretation of the beast is deliberately unclear. There's deliberate unclarity. These beasts are kind of identified in a timeless way. They kind of, of, um, in a way, time travel, if you like, and are represented in different periods of time. And if we went to Revelation, we'd see these kind of beasts referring to the end times and they're pointing to a bigger picture of the kingdom's. We'll see next week in Daniel chapter 8 when we get greater clarity on certain beasts and and thinking about it further. But what all this apocalyptic imagery is pointing to is how does God see all the kingdoms of the world? What's it got to do with the end and where we're heading into the future? And the big idea that we see is that in these apocalyptic visions, it's pointing to the fact that humanity has lost its humanness. It's beastly. So animal imagery is used all throughout the Bible and through the prophets and the Psalms to highlight human and kingdom violence and evil. It's beastly. Instead of ruling the way God has set up, it's to contrast that through evil and violence and hatred. And so all these imagery, what we're going to see is that the book of Daniel is introducing the metaphor that human kingdoms are acting as senseless beasts. If we flicked back, we've already got an insight into that, haven't we? That's why Daniel chapter 7 is like the key to understand it all because we can look back and the first king, Nebuchadnezzar, what happened to Nebuchadnezzar nearing the end? Does anyone want to hear that? What happened to him? What did he do? What did God make him do? Yeah, and he kind of, he lost his humanness and he kind of uh, wasn't ruling. He, he became a beast eating food on the, on the ground like an animal. He, he lost what it was to be a human ruler because he refused to acknowledge God as king. And so that's already played out and now we get this uh, grand vision. What observations do we make about these beasts? Well, if you scan over into Daniel chapter 7, if you have a look there, you see it gets, uh, it gets pretty intense, doesn't it? You see, uh, uh, well, first of all, it's the, the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, which automatically helps us see we shouldn't be thinking about Daniel in a chronological time order because Belshazzar has already come and gone. And now we're back there again. This is a key to understand the book. 
And so when we get to these beasts, if we scan through them, we see they're kind of crazy beasts and one's got even a horn. Uh, that, that imagery there, you can see it's kind of an attempt to draw it out. And you see the first was like a lion, the second was like a bear, the third was like a leopard. And the imagery gets more kind of wicked and vicious. And, the, and they were like a lion, but not really because the lion had wings of an eagle. The second beast, which looked like a bear, was raised up on its side and had three ribs in its mouth. The beast of a leopard, on its back it had four wings. They're increasingly vicious. Do you get to the seventh, um, sorry, to the fourth uh, beast in verse seven, and it's kind of a mutant, it's kind of unidentifiable, this beast. Let me read verse 7. After that, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was the fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the other beasts and it had ten horns. These horns identify uh, human kings. Is often uh, what horns uh, represent. And when we look in verse 8, while I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. This horn thinks it's spectacular and it's going to rule over them all. This horn really is trying to dominate everything. And see, what we're getting a picture of here is that the beasts are symbolizing violent, prideful kings. They're symbolizing the kings who reject God and his way. I think they're purposely undefined, although we can look back and we can actually identify, many people have, where you might say some of these these beasts, who they represent. Certainly, the pattern of Babylon is where Daniel is. There's Daniel in, in amongst... Uh, this imagery because he's living in a kingdom that is in total rebellion against God as these uh, visions highlight to him and Babylon there the picture of the the um, uh, that building kind of replacing the horn as the epitome of this see the Bible here is showing us that living in the kingdom of beasts is a pattern for kingdoms who are in rebellious uh, rule against God. That's the big picture that's playing out. When you get into all the details, and you could go into lots more things to talk about, but that big picture is the first and foremost most important thing to see. Then the vision continues on. And what happens in the vision is that God's cosmic plan is about to be revealed. He's about to show what is going to happen to any kingdom that is going to rebel against God. What is going to take place? And we see in uh, verse 13, then the Son of Man turns up. And the Son of Man, which previously just represents someone who is human we see in verse 13 in my vision at night i looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven 
what does this mean? What is going on? Well, before we go any further, we should take a step back and have a look at what's actually taken place before. How is this fitting into the big picture of the story? And if we jumped all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, when God makes humanity, what's at the forefront of uh, why he made us? We are made, Genesis 1 and 2, to be images of God. But just saying we're images of God doesn't highlight that when God said he wanted us to be in his image... He wanted us to rule the world under Him. We rule under God. That was God's intention for humanity. You go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and you'll see very clearly God made us in His likeness and image and He wants us to live under Him, following His ways and ruling as His representative. What an extraordinary picture for humanity. That is God's plan. But what happens? The first beast, the first violent animal turns up. The serpent. A serpent bent on destruction and lies, bent on rebelling against God, tells the first humans... You don't need to follow God's ways. You can sit on your own throne. I'll give you a throne. I'll give you a throne. And you can sit on that throne. You can be your own king. You can rule. You don't have God says you can rule. That's great. But don't worry about ruling under him. Take it on board for yourself. That's what you can do. And this ruling ended up in disaster. It meant that God kicked them out of the harmonious relation, relationship they were in and disaster had struck. Violence after violence. What happens in the next story? Cain and Abel, murder is introduced and violence because now, ruling by ourselves without God, we're losing our humanness because we're being more beastly. And from Cain and Abel, we get to the Tower of Babel right where Daniel is now in Babylon. This first beast has set humanity against God's plan. And it's a disaster. But hidden in those words of God condemning all who have participated, the serpent, Adam and Eve, we see these little words of a promise. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There is going to be a descendant of the woman, a human, who is going to actually destroy the beast. He's going to lash out. He's actually going to try and attack him. He's going to strike his heel. But there is going to be a son of man come to rule. Everything. And then the Bible story continues on a journey 
to find where is he going to come? And it narrows in on God, on Israel and God's people. And he's going to come from there as a Messiah and he's going to rule. And king after king and leader after leader comes and they're all flawed. They all give in to the way of violence and of the beast and ruling for themselves. Some, some of the best efforts were the most despicable. I think of King David, the one who's often seen as Israel's great king. And he killed and he committed adultery. No son of man who could do this is found. No human, no king. So where is he? Enter the vision of Daniel 7. Because now what we see in verse 9 is a courtroom. See, a courtroom where we read, as I looked, Thrones were set in place. Before I go any further, the horn is so prideful and so great, it's boasting about itself. All the while, there is a throne room being set up. Thrones were being set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. As God himself describes him in all his glory and splendor in the rest of verse 9. And then we get to verse 10. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. The courtroom is in session in the heavenlies. God is sitting on his throne. The court scene is set up and the horn is little suspecting because it's so prideful. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar? Just before he became a beast for a while, before he repented, he looked out and what did he see? Look at my kingdom that I have set up. How proud and how great I am is what he did. And now the beast is put on trial and he goes aflame and he's condemned. Verse 11, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. All of these kingdoms in rebellion are condemned in this courtroom. And then... What I've already alluded to is the Son of Man turns up and he comes into God's presence, coming on the clouds. At night I looked and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. There'd been no one who could sit on on the throne and now the throne that is vacant next to the Ancient of Days, this Son of Man is led into that place where he can sit on the throne. And in verse 14, what do we find out about this Son of Man? A vitally important verse. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. What do we see about this Son of Man? He is ruling on the throne. He is ruling on the throne and he is unmatched. And he is the human that we have been waiting for from the beginning of the Bible story back in Genesis. The human is back on the throne. But did you notice in verse 14 what everyone is doing? 
all nations and peoples and language, what are they doing? They are worshipping him. Right next to the Ancient of Days. This is either the greatest blasphemy that has ever taken place or this Son of Man is God himself. He is the God human. And what else do we see in verse 14? Well, we read, vitally importantly, the title that I've given this talk, God's kingdom is eternal. His dominion is everlasting. All these beasts and kingdoms who think they can rule, they can't rule forever. His kingdom is everlasting. His dominion will not pass away. He will never be destroyed. It's a spectacular imagery, isn't it? It's it's an amazing picture that God is bringing his plan to fruition. He didn't have to come up with plan B, C, D, E and F. His plan A wasn't thwarted by the fall and the first beast. He's bringing his son of man to the throne. And you start to get a picture of why Daniel 7 is an amazing chapter and opens up not just all of Daniel but all of the Old Testament story and all of the Bible including our story because Jesus makes the centre of his mission Daniel 7. He identifies himself as the Son of Man. We read that in the Lord's Supper together, didn't we? And what happens? There was a courtroom in the heavenlies. What happened at the end of Jesus' life? We read it in Matthew, didn't we? He went to the courtroom. And he was being accused what looked like impressive leaders, but actually they were acting like beastly humans, seeking violence and rebellion against God's Son of Man. That's really what's going on. The kingdom's rebelling against Jesus as he stands there in the courtroom being accused. And what happens when Jesus is accused? Here is the big twist. Here is the big moment. Here is Jesus flipping everything on its head paradoxically. He said in Matthew 6, From this moment you will see the Son of Man sitting at God's right hand and coming on the clouds. His condemnation by these beasts, Jesus is saying, is the moment when Daniel 7 becomes real. The Son of Man sitting at God's right hand, I'm coming on the clouds through my death into victory. an extraordinary picture that God's condemnation, uh, uh, the beast condemnation of Jesus, all human rebellion, if you like, rebellion, uh, condemnation of Jesus is the moment where Jesus shows he is the everlasting one, whose kingdom will never end. You see, Jesus came and the way he did his kingdom was in complete opposite to the violence of any other kingdom. 
The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We've used that verse so many times at Grove, I think probably the most out of any, maybe 2 Corinthians 5.14, but this one as well. But how much time have we spent reflecting on the Son of Man did not come? See how important those words are? Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. His kingdom is one where he gives up his life. All the other kingdoms is one where they seek to rule by violence, evil, wickedness and destruction. And he comes and gives up his life even at the condemnation of these kingdoms. And he does it so that you and I can be part once again of this ruling under God that he planned for us in the first place. You see, the cross looks like a beastly killing device. It looks like, and it was, the most despicable, horrible way to kill someone. It was violent. It was awful. And Jesus turns it into his crowning victory. What an extraordinary paradox that is. And he doesn't stay dead because we know he rises from the dead And he reigns into the new heavens, into all eternity. I wonder whether you see how spectacular the Bible is put together for us. How we should thirst more and more for understanding who this Son of Man is and living for him. That Daniel 7 shouldn't be just another chapter out of many in the Bible. It should be one that we come back to and see and understand and rejoice in and reflect upon, wrestling with everything that's crazy about it, but not seeing the bigger picture. All kingdoms will be destroyed. God's King, the Son of Man, will reign forever. How do we live in light of Daniel's vision then? How do we live in light of it? Well, I think first and foremost, we live by seeing him coming on the clouds and we praise him. We give him glory. We give him honour. And we're going to sing a song directly pointing us towards that as our final uh, application reflection straight after in a moment. But I want to ask you, Do you want to be restored to what you were made for if you haven't been? You see, it's not just the picture of Jesus. God's plan was for humanity to be rightly restored under him. See, the plan is more this. We ruling under God forever into the new heavens and the new earth. Because our King Lord Jesus has gone before us and redeemed us from our sin, our rebellion. If you haven't realised that you've been in rebellion to this King, today is as good a day as any to realise, you know what? I I want to live into all eternity the way that God made me for. We come to our King Jesus and we trust Him. We rely upon Him. And you are transformed by Him 
into all eternity. You don't have to think about what you do because that, that beastly way is still in us, isn't it? We, we, we acknowledge that in this side of heaven we still sin when we had the uh, Lord's Supper together. But it's Jesus who came on the clouds, who went to the cross, who makes it possible for us to be restored and to rule under God again. Can I encourage you to do that today? If you want to wrestle with that more, talk to a friend who's brought you here. I'd love to chat to you about it. If you've made that decision, the next step is is to get to know Jesus better. If you start going out with someone, you don't think, yeah, I've made a decision to, you can be my girlfriend, um, and then you spend the next three months never talking to them or never getting to know them. If you come to realize Jesus is your king, get to know him. Work out what it means to live for him as your king. Not to earn his favour because he's given it to you. And we'd love to help you to do that. But for all of us, we live in light of this vision, looking back to see his coming at the cross. See, we need to always be a people who never just thinks, I've done the Jesus thing, I move on to this now. We never move back from the very thing that restores us. We see him coming at the cross and we marvel at it. We let it shape the way we live. This service of sacrifice is what shapes us as a community and what shapes you as a person. And so we look back to see his coming. But we don't just look back, do we? We look forward to... To the final time he returns. We look forward to see him coming in his final return when the new heavens and the new earth will be restored. And we long for that because we don't want to think that now this is as good as it gets because it's just not that good, honestly. Even though there are great moments. Eternity with no beasts around, no rebellion, no sin in your life with God is what we long for and look to and what shapes every decision we make. And over the coming weeks, as we look into these visions, we'll get more into that and see how this is what brings us comfort now and shapes who we are as a people as we get into these wild and crazy visions in Daniel. But brothers and sisters, let's never lose sight that Jesus has come. Let's stand and sing after I pray that he is coming in the clouds of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to marvel at how spectacular it is that your kingdom will reign forever, that the Son of Man Our Lord Jesus restores us back to the relationship that you had always wanted for us. Not only restores us back to it, but makes us even anew in Christ. We pray, Lord, that we will look forward to our future, always casting our minds back to where he conquered all the beasts at the cross. We thank you and we give you praise, glory and honour. 
Amen.